You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you conversations with practitioners, authors, and scholars who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please reach out to us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. If you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Welcome to the final edition of SpyCast for 2020. Well, it's been quite the year. For this episode, I'm reaching back into the archive to release one entitled A Legal Perspective on the Snowden Case. For anyone that follows the news, which I suspect is most SpyCast listeners, you'll have seen that Snowden is back in the headlines. Will he be issued a pardon? Is he a traitor? Is he a hero? Is he a whistleblower? Or is he something else? I guess only time will tell, but it seems germane at this point to get a legal perspective on the Snowden case. So back in 2013, Mark Stout, our former historian and curator, got that perspective from one of the nation's top national security lawyers, Mark Zaid. So a figure many of you will know who will be appearing again on SpyCast at some point in 2021. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Hope as well that you and yours are safe and well and you have a better 2021 than you had in 2020. We're fortunate to have as our guest today Mark Zaid. Mark is one of the uh, country's most prominent national security lawyers. Uh, he works here in Washington and does a lot of legal work uh, regarding uh, whistleblowers, uh, security clearance cases, and, and cases, legal cases that deal in one way or another with the intelligence community. Uh, among his clients have been a number of people who've spoken here at the International Spy Museum. Uh, Tony Schaefer, for instance, uh, author of Operation Dark Heart. A, uh, a memoir about uh, Mr. Schaefer's time in Afghanistan that the government decided was classified, so they bought all 10,000 copies of the book. Uh, Not a Proudy, uh, who spoke here, author of the book Compromised. Uh, Gary Bernson, Bernson, I believe, actually, a CIA officer, uh, one of the first, if not the first, into Afghanistan in 2001, uh, and author of the book Jawbreaker. 
and also uh, Jeffrey Sterling, uh, who was uh, pursued by the government for purportedly having leaked information, classified information, to journalist James Risen, and also John Kiriakou, who uh, has just recently reported to uh, federal prison for uh, releasing classified information. So we've, we're really fortunate to have a, the expert, I think, here uh, on these sorts of issues to talk with us about Edward Snowden and some of the issues that he's raised. So Mark Sade, welcome to the International Spy Museum. Thank you. It's an absolute honor to be here. You're too kind. Uh, so Edward Snowden, um, this young man, 29 years old, um, used to work for Booz Allen Hamilton as a contractor at NSA. had also been at CIA. Uh, he's, as we record this, apparently in Hong Kong, and he has admitted to leaking top-secret compartmented documents to the Guardian newspaper in the United Kingdom and also to the Washington Post. So let's just start out with just a fundamental question. Is leaking classified information, is leaking U.S. government classified information a crime? Well, there's generally speaking, yes. And there are a couple of nuances to that. One, it depends on the lawful obligation that the person who is leaking the information might have to the U.S. government. So, so you mean like his non-disclosure agreement exactly. that he signed? Yes. when he, he signed a secrecy non-disclosure agreement that is a contractual obligation saying that, you know, I am bound by certain terms, including the most important of which is I shall never disclose classified information without authorization. We've had cases here uh, locally the APAC case, as it's known, the American-Israeli public affairs case, uh, where two individuals were prosecuted for leaking classified information of which it fell apart. I, I played a small role in that case. And that was whether or not individuals who had no obligation to protect classified information could be prosecuted uh, for leaking. And actually, under the Espionage Act that people hear about, that dates back to World War One and hasn't been amended in 60 years and desperately needs it. The way it is literally worded, you do not have to have an obligation. It doesn't talk about classified information. It talks about national defense information, which may or may not be classified. So what's that distinction? What is national defense information? It's defined in the statute, uh, and it can deal, the most basic stuff would be you know, troop movements, and information that deal with your, uh, mostly from a military defense standpoint, since it was World War One, we didn't have spy apparatus at, in, in the sense we do now. Uh, and it, because it hasn't been amended since the Korean War, it, it has some very broad connotations with respect. In fact, there was one prosecution back in the World War One days. This has this provision no longer exists, uh, I believe, uh, where it's not only if you would. Uh, do something to the detriment of the United States uh, or give, as it says in the statute, advantage to your enemy. But there was actually a provision that talked about if you published information that would, I'll paraphrase, would be detrimental to an ally of the United States, you could be prosecuted. And there was a gentleman who I believe actually was the news media, a film, no, a film documentary that he did about the American Revolution. And the decision was that that was detrimental to our ally Great Britain. It portrayed them in a negative light, and he was actually prosecuted for that, and uh, I think even sentenced to a term of years. I don't, I'm not sure if he ever served it. But that bit of the law is no longer that on the books. That bit, I believe, is no longer in the provision. So things do improve occasionally. Um, so, But am I correct that the U.S. classification system, so the system of, of, of marking documents, unclassified, confidential, secret, uh, top secret, that that actually comes out of executive order, not out, not out of law, not out of statute. Is correct. that correct? Uh, that way it is, it, it's not set in stone, set, so to speak, by congressional legislation, which obviously can be difficult to amend uh, and is politically based at times. 
So our classification system comes out of the White House in an executive order, current one, uh, actually I forget the number because I always go by the old one, it's been only slightly modified since President Clinton, which was 12958 and it's now it's 13 something. Uh, and that defines what confidential, secret, and top secret is. It, it dates back historically really only to the Eisenhower administration uh, to set all of this in place. And, and our terms have differed over the years. And in fact, there's, they're supposedly working on a new one now and very likely confidential may drop out completely because nobody ever sees anything that's confidential anymore. It's been sort of replaced by almost FOUO, for official use only, or SBU, sensitive but unclassified. You really only hear secret, top secret, and then this other term, TSSCI, top secret, sensitive, compartmented information. So Snowden um, has freely admitted that he divulged this information to the press, and he's given uh, interviews talking about this sort of information. Um, if he were your client, and certainly you've defended other people who have uh, claimed the title of whistleblower, as Snowden is, is trying to do, if he was your client, uh, how would you defend him? Right. Well, first, if he had been my client, he wouldn't be in the situation that he's in, hopefully, at least not by any advice I would have given him. Uh, and, uh, which is unfortunate. As you mentioned, I do have clients who uh, were and are facing prosecution for leaking information, separate and apart from any of my representation. I think it's sometimes the case, however, that your clients don't always do what the lawyer suggests. That, Am I right? That is true. That happens okay, at so. times, even to the best of us, I'm sure. All right. So imagine Snowden's your client, and he is where he is. So at this stage, <laughs> Snowden ha really does not have much of a legal defense because, as you said, he's freely admitted he has leaked classified information without authorization. Although, if you want to believe some of the really wacky conspiracy theories that are out there, he's a U.S. government plant that is deliberately leaking this information because the U.S. government wants him to for whatever weird reason, but that's actually out there. Uh, nevertheless, putting that aside, uh, his really only option, uh, though I don't really think meaningful, is to challenge the classification status of the information that so say, leaked. So say, yes, the document said top secret, com compartmented perhaps, but they don't really meet the legal criteria. They wouldn't really cause right. the level of harm to national security implied in the definition. And that's what occurred in the APAC case. That's also what occurred in the prosecution of Thomas Drake, who leaked information to the Baltimore Sun about NSA. And in both those cases was successful for, for a variety of reasons as well. In Snowden's case, though, I, I honestly don't think he would have any success, unfortunately, perhaps unfortunately, uh, to some, that in particular an order of the FISA court, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court, uh, which was marked top secret SCI, that that would not be considered or improperly classified. Uh, I should also say that, because everyone will hold out, well, but what about, he's a whistleblower and he did good by leaking this classified information. For one thing, there is no exception to any of the statutory provisions for which he would, he will no doubt be charged that speaks to whistleblowing. Uh, there are or is whistleblower protection to some extent in the national security field. It is so weak that quite honestly, as much as I'm always called a whistleblower lawyer, I ignore it. It's frankly legally irrelevant as far as I'm concerned. I can give my clients in the intelligence community as great or better protection than the executive branch and any statutory provisions 
that exists with respect to whistleblowing. So just to pick up on that, do you think then that the whistleblowing, whistleblower protection laws that deal with the national security community should be strengthened? Or do you feel as a lawyer whose job is to defend people that you've actually got the tools that you need is they just happen not to be called whistleblower protections? I'd say I'm waiting for the laws to actually be written so that they would be any meaningful purpose or serve any meaningful purpose to actually help these folks. What the current law does is set up a mechanism that, technically speaking, hopefully you won't suffer retaliation from your agency, whatever it might be, if you go to the Hill, to the oversight committees, or if you go to an inspector general's office, or if you go to an ombudsman that might exist in your particular agency. It's, it's not really designed to do anything more than that. It's certainly not designed to protect you for leaking in an unauthorized manner classified information uh, to the media. And, and, and even if it was to someone outside of the framework as mentioned in the statute or, or the provisions, uh, you know, you could, technically speaking, you're supposed to go to your oversight committees, so the House Permanent Intelligence Committee or the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Uh, tech, but I, I believe you can still go to your individual member, but you can't go to necessarily their staff members because you have to make sure they have the appropriate security clearances. But the only real role that any type of whistleblower status would convey on someone like Edward Snowden, if you want to call him that, and, I, and for some of his disclosures, I don't have a problem with calling him a whistleblower, but maybe we can get into the distinction of what information he disclosed. It would come in to uh, play a role in sentencing. You know, so what you, were your motivations? So you think he's going to jail for a long time, but, it, it, but the motivations may play into how long a time? Well, you know, most of the counts that he would likely face have 10-year penalties, and he's leaked multiple documents. They can look at each document being its own separate count. So I'm sure they're, they're at, you know, decades and decades, um, beyond his lifetime, his natural lifetime, if they really wanted to, to pile it on. But certainly, if, for example, we take his primary leak that everyone is touting him for with respect to the NSA surveillance program, if that perchance were later on determined to have been illegal surveillance, that I think that's going to be difficult, but we can talk about it. Uh, but it's, let's, let's say it's a possibility. Courts can change their minds. Maybe it would get up to all the way to the Supreme Court and there would be a determination it was illegal. Well, uh, that doesn't necessarily relieve him of criminal liability. It's sort of like if you are uh, trying to sell cocaine and you're then, you discover that it was a setup and you actually only had powdered sugar. Well, they were, you had a conspiracy to sell cocaine because that's what you thought you were, you were selling. So there's still charges that would probably be uh, survive that would survive against him, but certainly something like that would then impact his sentencing. Uh, that it sparked a huge public debate if the Congress stepped in and made doesn't look like they'll do this, but made what the NSA is doing illegal, that would be a factor in sentencing. Well, you've touched on a on a point here. I want to pick up specifically uh, for a moment, and that is the legality of these NSA programs. I mean, I've seen quite a few people in sort of in the public square saying that what NSA is doing is unconstitutional or illegal in some way, shape, or form. What's your view on that? Are, are these NSA surveillance programs, and here we're talking particularly about the, the collection of metadata about telephone calls made by Americans, is that illegal? Is there a case, is there a plausible case to be made that it's illegal? Let's put it that way. 
you know, you get two lawyers in a room, you're going to get two arguments. And obviously, I know a number of colleagues of mine who are decrying at the top of their lungs that these are illegal programs and unconstitutional programs. So the way I look at it at this stage is it's prima facie constitutional. And, and actually, you've got, this isn't just the executive branch, in this case, the NSA and the president of the United States, because it goes all the way up to the White House, has created this program. You've also then got authorization from Congress, at least from the intelligence committees who have ju uh, judicial, not judicial, I'm sorry, uh, legislative oversight over the, the program. They've authorized it. Now you've also got approval from at least one judge on the FISA court. So you've got each of the three branches of government or individuals in the government in those branches signing off on it. So as Justice Jackson has said, you know, you've got everything you really would want to show that this is constitutional. Now, that said, you know, we can look back in history at decisions each of the three branches have made over the course of time that today don't sit well with us. Well, you to know, take an extreme case, slavery at one point slavery was, a, was fully approved by all branches of government. Not that long ago, the incarceration of the Japanese in World War II, which was signed off on by the governor of California, who was Earl Warren who was one of the most liberal Supreme Court ju chief justices we've ever had. And later on, and in fact, during World War II, the Supreme Court upheld the incarceration of the Japanese and then later reversed that after a period of time when socially and legally we decided that was the wrong thing. So could the Supreme Court shoot down this program? Yes. So are there arguments to be made by lawyers that there's this is an unconstitutional program? Yes. But as far as I'm concerned, at least at this stage, they're just arguments. Right now, this is a viable program that exists and approved by all three branches of government, and it is what it is. You may not like it. You may have a policy difference with it. Same thing as with the Kyoto you know, protocols, uh, protocols or, or gay marriage or whatever. Any other political Any issue. Any other political issue that you know is going back and forth that is uh, interwoven with the law. Um. You, you, you mentioned uh, in passing uh, different options um, other than the route that Snowden took that were open to whistleblowers. And you mentioned a couple of these, but I want to come back and sort of pull all those together specifically. Uh, imagine that Snowden had come to you before he'd, you know, before he'd spoken to anybody and said, I've, I'm, I'm privy to these horrible things. Can't tell you Mark's aid about them, but I'm privy to these horrible things and the whistle needs to be blown. Sort of if he was strategizing with you from the from the get-go, what would be the steps that you would have advised him, or for that matter, that you would advise future uh, would-be whistleblowers out of the intelligence community to to take? You've touched on some of this, but pull it all together sure. for us. Sure. And I will say I have had those cases numerous times. I have those cases currently ongoing of individuals who are, in fact, covert individuals. Snowden was a defense contractor. His his role in the process is not covert. His his duties, his responsibilities, and daily activities might have been his access. But, I mean, I've got people that are under far, far, you know, deeper cover. Their affiliation with the agencies in the U.S. government can't even be revealed a la Valerie Plame uh, type of case. And I'm not going to say that had he come to me or anyone come to me that I would have been successful. In fact, I have cases where I haven't been successful. It's a tough business, especially when you have, as I just said, all three branches of government signing off on it. And I've had other cases like that, too. So, you know, you don't have a branch to go to that has legitimate, I don't say, meaningful oversight 
over the other one when they've all signed off on it already. So it would have been a seriously uphill battle from the get-go. It, it would, oh, well, any type in any of these national security cases, it's always an uphill battle. But I can also tell you of cases, uh, some of them I can't tell you of, where we've been successful. And we've been successful because you haven't heard about them. Because I didn't need to have the client go to the media or I go to the media in an unclassified format. But nevertheless, the way I will always recommend that there are certain steps that need to be taken, can be taken, need to be taken. They can be done in, uh, independently of one of another, or they can be done in conjunction with one another. Uh, so for one thing, one can go to any of the various inspector general's offices, and in this case, there are numerous ones that would have jurisdiction over the NSA surveillance case. Uh, you can go, as I said, to the ombudsman. You can go to the oversight committees. Now. Probably those attempts would have been unsuccessful given the nature of this particular case, but we have seen in the aftermath of the information becoming public that there are numerous members of Congress that for whatever reason, genuine or not, they are incredibly upset about this program and we could have gone to them. Uh, and you know, they, as in Daniel Ellsberg's case, could have taken any of that information and gone on the Senate or House floor and revealed it all and suffered no legal repercussions because they, members, are, they are immune from prosecution for revealing classified information on the floor of the House or the Senate. And the only check on them doing that is political, is the sense of uh, they, if their constituents are outraged that they did this, they might not get reelected, re but that's the only check on Absolutely. them in that regard. And, you know, Senator Rand Paul would have been a perfect person to bring all this information to. Says he's going to bring a lawsuit against the U.S. government and the telephone companies for having released this metadata saying it's unconstitutional or whatever it is he's saying. Uh, so, you know, there were options on the Hill for sure. Now, would they have had the political courage? I don't know. But, but at least there was an option. Another option that could have occurred uh, short of releasing the information to the press would be what I just did last week, or started to do at least, in representing a current covert case officer, paramilitary case officer of the CIA, who was, uh, and may still be the only person who was subject to a criminal prosecution for war crimes in a country that has not been identified for undertaking, as I was allowed to say, offensive operations against individuals designated to be enemies of the United States of America. And everybody can figure out what any of that stuff means. And we're trying to get an inspector general investigation to complete its course because it's ruining his career. I so, should, I should so the Justice Department has declined prosecution okay. in this case. So we're only stuck internally, administratively, and it's ruining his career. And I need this IG investigation to be completed. It's been around for two, three years, and they're taking their sweet time. So While we, this guy's slowly twisting well, the wheels. Yeah. So I... I have authorized access to classified information. I know who my client is. I don't know all the details about the case. It's above my clearance level. And in fact, we haven't been told even what the specific allegations are against him. Uh, justice declined prosecution without even interviewing him. And the IG's office has never interviewed him, though we've offered uh, to sit down and talk with them so we can get this over with. But so I wrote a complaint. Uh, I have because I have authorized access to classified information, a legal obligation to submit my writings for pre-publication review. The document was, no, nothing classified in it. 
uh, and we filed the lawsuit. And this lawsuit revealed information, even though it's completely unclassified, that no one knew about before, at least no one publicly knew about before, and it garnered you know, a decent amount of, of publicity as a result. Now, in Snowden's case, I think I actually would have had an easier time coming up with ways to write in a complaint the information that he really wanted to get out without revealing or disclosing any of the documents, without putting him in legal jeopardy or me as the lawyer in legal jeopardy, and would have been sufficient enough to give the media, members of Congress, uh, everyone else, an opportunity to jump on the bandwagon to debate the policy implications of what's un underway uh, without revealing anything that would be harmful to the United States. There's always ways to, most times, I'd say majority times, to work around disclosing the classified information as in offensive operations against individuals for uh, who are designated enemies of the United States. I mean, you know, that says something right there. I'm but it's fairly not sure I could get down to the short list of who you're probably talking to. I won't, okay. but yeah, okay. Uh, let's go in a different... Otherwise, I'd have to represent you. Yes, exactly. Um, I've got other uses for my money. Uh, let's go in a different direction here for a minute. Some people have accused Snowden of treason. What is treason under U.S. law, and is there even a, a serious discussion to be had about whether he's guilty of it? A treason is a nice, dirty term to use that has a very specific context. In fact, treason is in the, declar in, in the Constitution, in Article 3, Section 3, and it says... Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. No person shall be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act or on confession in open court. And then it talks about Congress enacting laws about treason. When we think about treason, we think about, as no doubt, uh, I think at that time, I'll have to think back in history, whether Benedict Arnold uh, was yet uh, revealed as, as a traitor, uh, we'll think back to the Civil War, and quite frankly, given that uh, as a New Yorker I'm part of the North, given that we beat the South, everyone who was in the Confederacy uh, committed treason, and certainly the officers and the uh, legislators in the Confederacy did, but uh, they were pardoned by, I think, President Johnson uh, afterwards, and obviously to keep the Union together, no one was going to be prosecuted for that. The United States actually had not indicted anyone for treason since World War II until 2006 when Adam Gadan, who's a U.S. citizen and has been a spokesman for al-Qaeda, uh, was, was indicted. I think he's, I don't know if he's dead yet or he's just in hiding somewhere elsewhere, but we don't have him. Uh, and, but treason, just by as the definition I read, is, is not an applicable term. Uh, Edwin Snowden's not levying war against the United States uh, for that. So uh, we hear more terms of, as so many of the interviewers have been asking me on the news, is he a traitor or is he a hero? And traitor is a different term. doesn't have a legal definition uh, that I'm aware of, but that's more of you know, Robert Hansen, Aldrich James, Kim Philby, uh, and all the others that are you know, on display here in the museum. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, 
The best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust Plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. So as of today, Snowden is apparently in Hong Kong. Uh, and Hong Kong has an extradition treaty with the United States. Um, just briefly, can can you talk about what that means and what extradition is and how it would work or, or not work, as the case may be? So most countries, especially those that are in the first world and even nowadays second and third world, so to speak, uh, we have extradition treaties. They are documents that govern how we will deal with the request to that country of trying to secure the physical custody of some individual that is present in that country to bring back for prosecution. We don't always follow it. We had a huge case here in the 90s about uh, Umberto Alvarez Machine, who was a Mexican, is a Mexican doctor and was implicated in the murder of a DEA agent. And instead of following or pursuing or utilizing the extradition treaty between our neighbor and ally Mexico, we sent individuals in and we snatched and grabbed them. We conducted a rendition, uh, which wasn't called then that really at the time, but that's what we did. Uh, and the case went up to the Supreme Court, actually. Mexico sued. The government of Mexico sued and said, you violated the extradition treaty. Why do we have an extradition treaty if you're just going to come on our soil in violation of Mexican law and grab our people? And actually, the Supreme Court in a 9-0 decision said, eh, we don't have to follow it if we don't want to. You know, if we want to, we will. In this case, we didn't. What are you going to do about it? Uh, I don't agree with that decision. If anyone who follows international law really doesn't agree with that decision, but that's what it is as a matter of domestic law. So uh, we do have an extradition treaty with Hong Kong. I believe it's from 1998. Uh, now, Hong Kong is a unique situation because it was in this independent city that is now part of the People's Republic sort of, of China. Sort of a special region inside the People's Republic. It has still a degree of independence. It's British-based. But they do have some now obligations uh, to China that they have to defer to if China exerts them. Uh, the biggest problem that will occur in the extradition treaty is whether or not Snowden's actions are deemed political offenses. Most extradition treaties have exceptions that, we w that a country will not extradite someone if the act that they're accused of committing is a political offense because that could vary so widely and civil disobedience. They don't want, you know, for example, if, if we had, and I think we do have in the United States, uh, individuals who participated in the Tiananmen Square revolt in 1989, you know, we would not, I guarantee anyone, would not, unless something, we really needed China's help, we would not extradite someone back to China for violating whatever laws, no doubt, it violated in 1989. But if we had political some, offense. Be, but if we had somebody from China here who'd murdered somebody in Beijing, that would be a different proposition, and Absolutely. that person likely would be extradited. Right. Okay. Now, Snowden has changed the ground. I don't want to say ground, the the, uh, the truth on the ground, or whatever the sayings facts, are. Facts on the ground. Facts on the ground, so to speak. You know, if he had only leaked information on the surveillance program. 
you know, like it or not, I could see some countries for sure, certainly countries that are hostile to the United States, saying that's a political offense. And whether or not somebody considers him a traitor, at least if you take at face value what his comments have been, his motives have been, and I think the more he talks, the more you can possibly question those. But uh, if you take it at face value, you know, his motives were not to harm the people of the United States. He's trying to right or wrong civil disobedience. That's a typical political offense. He's now gone beyond that. The more he talks, the more we're hearing reporting, he's now leaked information that we, the United States, was conducting or is conducting offensive cyber war operations against China. I, that, that, that has now entered a completely different category. Now, China may still want to keep him there because maybe they want to debrief China, debrief him, maybe offer him asylum, uh, keep him there. Uh, then we start to go into tra much more to trader, you know, not, I doubt, treason, but in the layman's definition of it. It's, a, new, it's a different political game at that point. And, and he's been doing that. The more we've been hearing information come out now, it has been more the classic espionage uh, or at least information that I think he's just, every time he speaks, he's going to lose public support. So would I be correct in speculating again that if he were your client, you'd be telling him to shut up? I don't, you know, I don't understand what he's doing at this stage. And, you know, we've, we've seen reports that he's been receiving, or reporters have told me, at least behind the scenes, that he's been receiving legal advice. And I don't know who he's receiving legal advice from, but as soon as he disclosed, and there's no dispute about it that he disclosed it, as soon as he disclosed the cyber war operations, he, he went into such a different category. You want to call him a whistleblower for the surveillance? Fine. You know what? I'll, I'll credit you that for purposes of this conversation. No prosecution on that. You know what? For the United States to now lock him up for 60 years based on the other things that he did, which has harmed, I think, U.S. national security, regardless of, as many lay people will say, well, didn't the Chinese know we were hacking into their computers? I'm sure the Chinese knew it. We know the Chinese are hacking into our computers, but anyone who works inside the intelligence community knows that there's a significant di distinction between what your, your enemy or ally uh, may know about offensive uh, intelligence operations versus when those operations become publicly known and the politicians in each country need to then get involved and need to take action that may harm foreign policy and maybe national security policy. Last couple of questions here. Um First, there's been speculation that Snowden might try to go to a country like Iceland, for instance, a, a place where uh, he would be able to get uh, asylum. Um, let's assume he gets asylum in some country. Will that put him permanently beyond the reach of U.S. law? Um, is, he, is he home free if he can get to Iceland, hypothetically? Well, asylum uh, is certainly a practice that we exercise here in the United States frequently. Someone who's in, in jeopardy whether physically, in the sense of could be killed if they go back. I don't, I mean, technically speaking, I suppose maybe he might be subject to the death penalty, but I doubt that that, that would really arise. But uh, certainly prosecution and maybe unfair prosecution from the other country's perspective when they consider the request. And if he was granted asylum in a particular country, he would be safe in that country. Uh, so long as that country decides they want to continue to grant the asylum request. It's a political decision sometimes. And uh, so that if, say, Iceland granted him, I'd be somewhat surprised, but if Iceland granted him 
asylum uh, so long as they maintained it and didn't decide, for example, if their government changed in two years to then turn him over, uh, he'd be safe. Or so long as the United States didn't conduct an, an, ex, an activity, an exercise, however you want to call it, uh, where we sent individuals in to snatch and grab. Like that Mexican doctor like the referred Mexican to. doctor. You know, we, we do it. It is legal under U.S. law. There's actually an Office of Legal Counsel opinion by uh, the Deputy Attorney General from back in the uh, first Bush administration that says as a matter of U.S. domestic law, we can conduct operations like that. We violate the laws of the host state that we, whose territory we go on. So if any of our people were caught, uh, then they could be prosecuted. And in fact, in my case of Sabrina D'Souza, uh, who was a State Department Foreign Service officer in consular officer in Milan, Italy, and was, in, was accused by Italy of being involved in an extraordinary rendition of a sheikh over there, uh, there have been 26 Americans who have been prosecuted and convicted by the country of Italy for violating their territorial sovereignty and kidnapping, even though the accusation by Italy is that it was a U.S. sanctioned, lawful, in our terms, operation. Though, and I don't want to discuss that case in detail, perhaps in a, in a, in a future conversation, uh, but none of those Americans are actually in jail. The Italians don't actually have any of those right. 26 Americans. It's all in absentia today. prosecutions. Gotcha. Last question then. So sum all this up for us, uh, not so much from a you know, uh, Mark Zaid, uh, lawyer, but Mark Zaid, uh, you know, I- informed American citizen. Do you think that Snowden has sparked a worthwhile conversation or maybe put another way, how do you think we're going to be, look back, I don't know, 30 years from now on, uh, on Snowden? I, I think certainly with respect to the topic of surveillance, sure, he's, he sparked a worthwhile conversation. I mean, some people have compared him to Daniel Ellsberg, for instance. You know, and that's an interesting comparison. And on some level, it almost feels strange uh, for me because I'm going to differ from the opinion of Daniel Ellsberg himself, who keeps comparing Edward Snowden and Manning and Julian Assange to himself. Yeah, personally speaking, I, I, don't, I don't look at Snowden as Daniel Ellsberg. I think there's some very, very significant factual and legal distinctions between the cases. I mean, for one thing, Daniel Ellsberg was one of the individuals who actually drafted the Pentagon Papers that he ended up leaking. He had personal knowledge of what the information was in in those documents, and he had spent time in, in the intelligence world inside of Vietnam. And, you know, for those don't remember because it's so historical only for them. I mean, the Pentagon Papers was a secret history, and that's what it was, a history of U.S. involvement in Vietnam that actually concluded that it was, in generically speaking, a waste of our time. We're never going to win. We don't need to be there. It's not going to cause us any harm. And so all these tens of thousands of people who were dying were essentially needlessly dying. And that differed 180 degrees from what the, the Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon administrations were saying, and, and their senior cabinet members. And Daniel Ellsberg had an epiphany and decided that what he had worked on personally was no, lo- no longer met his conscience, and he needed to do something about it. So there's one distinction first. He had full public knowledge, public in, to himself, full knowledge of what he was leaking and the ramifications from it. 
Snowden has no idea what he was leaking. You know, he could read the FISA order like any of us can now online, but he doesn't know what the NSA was doing with that information. He wasn't involved with any of that. He doesn't know necessarily who approved it, who didn't, where it was going, how it was being used. Was it beneficial, not beneficial? He knows none of that. He has a piece of the puzzle. And he doesn't know what the portrait of the puzzle looks like if he put it all together. It sounds like this is a point that one might also make about Bradley Manning. Even worse for Bradley who, who Manning. Who clearly didn't really know what he had or understand no, what Manning was... took a, thumb, uh, a Lady Gaga-designated CD, stuck it in his computer, and both cases reveal a, a breakdown in physical security that should never have been permitted. Uh, that's another topic of conversation. And he downloaded 700,000 pages or documents. I forget which is it pages or documents that he had never read. He didn't have time to read. No, of course not. He could never have done it. And he just, boom, leaked it to, to WikiLeaks. So uh, going back to Ellsberg in particular, you know, he, one, again, what he leaked revealed systemic lies at the highest echelons of our government. What Snowden has leaked so far has been approved at the highest echelons of our government. You may have a difference of opinion as to it, but it's it's been approved. It's not contradicting anything. In fact, going back to Manning, the WikiLeaks releases, one of the things that was so surprising about the information, even that which was classified, was that it actually revealed that what our government was telling us publicly was pretty much what it was saying in secrecy, that they weren't snowing us, so to speak. They weren't lying to us about the actions they were taking and why they were taking it, uh, which was somewhat refreshing to see, especially given what I do. Uh, Ellsberg tried to persuade U.S. government officials at first. He went to members on the, on the uh, Senate in particular. So he took some of the, his, he took some those alternate I, routes that you yes. talked about earlier. And now it didn't work. Now, some of the reason why it didn't work was because at the time, the politicians didn't have the political will. Uh, Senator Gravel from Alaska ultimately actually went on the Senate floor after the documents were published in part by the New York Times, Washington Post, and other papers, which everybody always forgets. There were actually other newspapers involved. Ellsberg leaked at numerous places. Uh, and then he read a lot of it, obviously not all 47 volumes, I think it was, into the record. Uh, but he, he did it. Um, but, you know, nevertheless, there was, there was that option. And the other thing I think that is really different uh, between the two is Daniel Ellsberg stood on the steps of the courthouse when he was indicted and he took full responsibility. In fact, he, he said, quote, I did this clearly at my own jeopardy and I'm prepared to answer to all the consequences of this decision, end quote. And the fact is he probably would have been convicted if the Nixon White House didn't uh, idiotically, uh, illegally surveil him and uh, Morton Halpern, who's a major former official here in D.C., and break into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office and conduct all this illegal operations that ended up having the charges thrown out because of governmental misconduct. Now, parenthetically, years later, the Solicitor General of the United States, that by that time former, in 1988, wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post, uh, and he, def he argued the case before the Supreme Court when they tried to get an injunction against the New York Times and Washington Post. And he said, I was looking at that information at the time, and I have no idea why it was classified. I think it was improperly classified, never should have been classified. Uh, but that's not going to be the case in Snowden's case. And I, I think it is somewhat ironic and somewhat hypocritical when he's going on air saying, you know, I leaked this information and I'm not hiding. And, you know, he's hiding in 
Hong Kong. <laughs> I mean, to me, that's hiding. Okay, here I did it, uh, but you can't, you can't touch me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's not accepting consequences. And I think you started to see some folks. In fact, some very senior journalist, Bob Schieffer, said this on on CBS uh, last week or so, saying, "I don't, I don't understand." You know, if you're if you're not hiding, I mean, look, you might have done a great thing, and we'll see. The judge or jury is out on that, but come forward and take responsibility for it, and possibly face the music. In fact, they're in the APAC prosecution. The federal judge who handled it here in the Eastern District of Virginia actually said on record that doesn't get a lot of play that that he thinks there there are times in which someone should or at least could justify leaking classified information to the media without authorization, but then you need to t step up and take the consequences and defend your decision. And if you're right, the system will hopefully work for you. But if you're wrong, then you go to jail the way the law requires. Well, I think it's safe to say that these issues uh, of Snowden himself and the issues that uh, Snowden has raised are going to continue to be discussed and debated and, and argued over, uh, and perhaps that's a good thing here in the United States for, for some time to come. But, but Mark Zaid, I want to thank you uh, for, if nothing else, hopefully allowing people to argue at a, at a higher plane here, helping us sort through some of these issues. So I really appreciate you chatting with us here at the International Spy Museum. Thank you. Come again. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.